Thank you, Bill. Before re-entering our series in Romans, specifically chapter 13, I want to make a few comments um, that will enter us into that series. There are three major theistic religions in the world in chronological order, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And as you can see from the verses that Bill just read and from the rest of the Bible, the rest of the New Testament specifically, Christianity is not a political system. It has huge implications for politics and, and, and social policy, but it's, there's, there's no mandate to displace the governing authorities. Uh, Judaism is also not a political system, but Old Testament theocracy of Judaism uh, did not Judaism remained mostly ethnic and tribal just us by contrast Islam is a political system as well and this has been borne out historically and and uh, honest Muslims will tell you if if that if they could they would displace the laws of whatever country that they live in with Sharia law now, Dr. Jeremiah Johnson is a historian. I want, you to I want to tell you about his research, and I could, we could lose the ball in the weeds here, but I want to tell you about this because I think it's fascinating and I think it's important for you to know because there's so many things that are being said about Christianity and the culture these days that are very misleading. There, Jeremiah Johnson is a historian. His PhD is from Oxford in England, and is published at Oxford University Press. He's written a recent book, recently written a book entitled Unimaginable. And his case is that Christianity without the world is, uh, the world without Christianity, rather, is unimaginable. And it, it, his point is that wherever Christianity exists in a society and is put into practice, that society, in contrast with all the surrounding societies, both before and after, that society, influenced by the gospel, under whatever government, thrives in every category. For example, he makes the case that Greek and Roman cultures were inherently racist. You read Plato and Aristotle, very racist guys. But when Christianity came, became dominant in the 4th century, racism totally receded. And he, I quote, for about a thousand years, there is not a single thinker, not just in the Christian world, but anywhere, who espouses racist ideology. And I know you're sitting there thinking, yeah, but what about? Well, he answers those things in his book. It was after the worldview of naturalism or atheism appeared in the 18th century, and that was fueled by Darwin's alternate view of origins in the 19th century that racism came about as an ideology. Indians, uh, Asians, any third world society or race was clearly less evolved according to that viewpoint and less important. And, and those non-Christian worldviews became the ethical framework for racism for mass murder, for genocide, things that you see laid out in the writings of Nietzsche, Karl Marx, Hitler, 
fact, Hitler gave Stalin and Mussolini the collected writings of Nietzsche. So, Johnston also makes the case that we can answer the theoretical question, what if Christianity never existed? Because we can document it exactly what has happened to similar cultures at the same time in history where Christianity was not present. And we can also look at what happened to those same countries where Christianity was persecuted mostly out of existence and then evaluate what happened to that society afterward. So here's what was proven. When Christianity is removed, whether it's replaced by Islam or a communist ideology or, or, or whatever ideology it may be, whenever it was removed, darkness returned. So you've got these controls for a solid historical conclusion that wherever Christianity exists in a society and is put into practice, that society thrives. Okay, that's a long way around of saying what Jesus said. You are to be salt and light. And here's the deal. When we are salt and light, it works. And it has been proven historically, and that's not something that you should shy away from. Were there exceptions here and there? Absolutely. But those were exceptions and definitely not the norm. Christianity has enhanced life on earth, not just for Christians, but for non-Christians as well. So when Christians function as salt and light, these measurable things have happened. For example, there was no humanitarian aid in the ancient world at all, period, nothing. It started with the Christians who helped people in various plagues, risking their own lives. Before Christianity, nobody was addressing the issues of poverty, sickness, domestic, domestic violence, infanticide, premature death, economic injustice, slavery, and political corruption. There was no systemic concept of benevolence or charity. There was, and I'm quoting him again, there was no worldview ethic before the church that caused you to take care of people who were not of your own community who were hurting. Atheists just don't meet together and take up a benevolence offering. Because of our historical distance, we just assume that programs for taking care of people who were hurting were always there. But they weren't. They didn't exist. Okay, thank you, Gary, for the lecture. So, how does the church change the world today? And here's, here's one big picture. Christianity has been involved, the church has been involved in crisis relief everywhere. Uh, in the United States and in globally, and also globally. When, who gave the most relief during Hurricane Harvey in Houston, the worst natural disaster in our country, 179,000 homes destroyed, millions of people uprooted. The group that's always in the news is FEMA. And that's a wonderful function of our government. But the group that provides the most help on site always, always 
steps up to provide the most help in every crisis, locally or globally, is the church. It's the Christians who are saying, we're not going to let you suffer alone. We're going to be there with you. We're here to help. And as Johnson says, no one has ever seen an atheist tent set up to offer food, water, and lodging to victims of a natural disaster. There's a worldview reason behind what we do and why we do it. Now, I say all that to say this. We've been, we've been looking at the functions of Christianity and government, the relations between the two. We started a few weeks ago, as Bill mentioned, and I, I want to do three things in our study today. And yes, this is definitely a teaching kind of sermon. The first thing I want to do is just to re-enter Romans 13 and remind ourselves of the big picture purposes of government. The second thing I want to do is to talk about those two concepts that Jesus put forth of salt and light. And what does that look like? I've already described quite a bit of what that looks like and has looked like historically. But the third thing I want us to do is to think together about how we can be salt and light right now, here, today. So first, take your Bibles, look with me back at Romans 13, 1 to 7. Let's remind ourselves of the big picture purposes of government. Verse 1, I'm going to read it again. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. And here's the stated reason. For there's no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority is opposed to the ordinance of God. And they who oppose will receive condemnation upon themselves. And, and last time we studied this, we talked about the difference between submit and obey. And we, we're to be submit, but we, dis, we discussed that difference before. Now, what should citizens expect from government? Verses 3 and 4 tell us. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister to you from, for good. I'm going to stop right there. That is a principle statement. This is God's design for government. It's not a particular statement about this government or that government, but it's a statement of principle and it rings true. It is for our good that government has been established. The word good here includes the ideas of justice and fairness, establishing peace. And we can see that from other texts that are brought in too. In Rome, some of you have heard of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace that united the Roman Empire, peace through the empire. But it also included other things. The infrastructure of Rome, the Roman road system was astonishing and it enabled the missionary journeys. The aqueduct system for bringing water in was very important for Roman cities. Roman taxes paid for the roads, for the aqueducts, uh, for all of those things. Things like that we value today. And that's what Romans 13 is talking about when it mentions paying taxes. Uh, that, we'll, get to, we'll read that in just a moment. But, uh, you know, we might include today, you know, the roads, the infrastructure, the water system, uh, sewage, all those things, part of an infrastructure, are part of what taxes are for. Uh, we could include parks, playground, uh, playgrounds, places where people and families can flourish. Verse 4 continues, but if you do what is evil... Be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Okay, so here's God's plan from verse 4. You obey the law, it will be a source of protection for you and provide 
an area in which you're you and your family can flourish. That's the ideal. That's what God intends for government to be able to do. If you break the law, government will become a source of justice for you. Because in the long run, God is going to make sure that good prevails over evil. And he will do it much on this earth through government. That is his plan. But he will also ultimately and finally exact his own judgment. He is the judge of all judges as well. So bad government is better than no government at all. Anarchy is always worse. If you want to check that out, read the last five chapters of the book of Judges. Anarchy is worse than no government. In New Testament times, the problem was not concerned that sometimes we have today of too much government. It was fear of too little government. I want you to turn in your Bibles, hold your place here, but turn over to Acts 18. Rome was notoriously libertarian with regard to other local magistrates and authorities. Unless an issue registered on the, their radar that threatened the Roman Empire, Rome was pretty much hands-off. And you can see in that, that in the exchange between Jesus and, or Pontius Pilate and the Jewish leaders that were trying to crucify Jesus. You see that exchange right there where eventually Pilate gave in to the local authorities. Now, remember, <clears throat> the Jewish authorities also dragged Paul before the proconsul Gallio. And there's this fascinating exchange. In, Roman, in Acts 18, I'm going to start reading in verse 13. I am jumping into the middle of a context, but look at this. Acts 18, 13. The, here's, here's what the Jews were accusing Paul of. This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. They don't specify which law. Gallio has just arrived. He's new. They are hoping he's going to think Roman law. They mean Jewish law. But they don't say that. But look at this, verse 14. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrong or a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names and your own law, look after it yourselves. I am unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. And then in the latter part of verse 17, but Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. Hey, that's the Roman attitude right there. You, you, you see it on display in Acts 18. Now back to Romans 13. Back to Romans 13. There's an important word in verse 4, and that word is the word sword. Government bears, does not bear the sword in vain. There are three uses of that word, which I mentioned a few weeks ago, that the, the word sword is used to refer to war, to refer to capital punishment, and to refer to the threat of force that will maintain civil order or police. In fact, I think all three are in view here. Um, earlier I mentioned that the term sword bearer is found in first century papyri to refer to local police. So he's talking about the authority to exercise power at all levels. Here's the motivation for submission in verse 5. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection not only because of wrath, that's external, man's law, 
but also for conscience sake. That's internal, God's law. The government does not bind my conscience. Only God does. But by submitting to the lesser authority, authority of the lesser king, I'm ultimately submitting to the greater authority, the king of kings. And in verses 6 and 7, Paul mentions some examples of the attitude of submission. For because of this, that is the proper role of government, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God devoting themselves to this very thing. That's, that's the best case. That's what they're supposed to be doing. That's what they're supposed to be doing. Devoting to themselves to this, uh, to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes do. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. And we could add verse 8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Verse 8 is not really about finances or about indebtedness. I'd go to Proverbs for that counsel. But about our social obligations. And he, in fact, Verse 8 brings it right back around to verse, chapter 12, verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. So that he closes that loop right here after he's described the proper functioning of government and what we owe the governing authorities. Now, here's what I didn't get to last time. There are two distinct areas of responsibility that are described here. Two distinct areas. And, and I think we need to think clearly about these things as we look at governing authorities. Here's the... There's the government's role, and there's the believer's role. And the, they are different. Romans 12 has been describing the individual believer's role in doing the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And that includes things like chapter 12, verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. All of, you know, the first several verses of chapter 12 have to do with things like turning the other cheek, with forgiving one another. But if that's all Paul said, and if he were applying that to government, if government had no authority from God, the result would be anarchy. Let me put it this way. Governments can't turn the other cheek. They're not supposed to. We are to forgive, but government is not about showing grace and mercy, but about justice, about fairness, about providing peace. Because if governments were all about turning the other cheek, then nobody would receive anything by way of punishment or correction, it would, government would just always turn the other cheek. That's not what the government is supposed to be doing. I want you to see this in the context. That's why Romans 12, 18 and 19 is followed by its context. Look at this. Look at 12, 18 and 19. 18, be at peace with all men. Now here's 19. Are you following along here? I told you this was a teaching sermon. I want you to see the context here because it's very important. Verse 19, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 
Evil people will be dealt with by God. They'll face God's wrath. But in the context, and we know that that will happen in the final judgment, but in the context, notice that verse 4 tells us, you know, God says, vengeance is mine. Look at chapter 13, verse 4. The government does not bear the sword for nothing. It is an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Do you see how that, those two passages? See, chapter divisions were added later. This ties directly into the separate roles that an individual has as opposed to the role that a government has. The government, the government is the instrument of God's wrath. It's not the role of government to make decisions based on emotions or even compassion. I'm hoping to address that a little bit more next week, but emotional arguments cut both ways. As I understand the controversy with the Colorado bakery shop with Jack Phillips, uh, the problem there was that the law was not applied fairly or instituted fairly because of the emotional bent of those who are making and applying the laws. So it's not the role of government to make decisions based upon emotion. It's the role of government to administer justice fairly. And if government becomes confused and ignores justice based on emotional arguments, then the fear component of the government's authority is gone. The argument for deterrence, that is for punishment, for deterrence is gone. Or in terms of Romans 13, the sword is sheathed. Some of you are sitting, I can see the wheels turning. But, 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 okay. Next week, or just call Lewis. Now, Paul led several members of the Praetorian Guard to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Several members of Caesar's household. Paul did not ask them to help him escape or plead for his freedom. There were separate things that were going on there. We owe three obligations to government. Two of them are in this passage. And the two that are in this passage are, first of all, submission, and that's to the authority of the office. We may not like who's in the office, but we submit to the authority of the office. Secondly, payment of taxes, which is support for government infrastructure. And the third one that is in 1 Timothy chapter 2 is prayer for our rulers. 1 Timothy 2 says this, Pray for kings and all in authority in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And 1 Timothy was written after Nero became crazy. I remember years ago, many years ago now, Richard Halverson was the chaplain of the Senate, and he was an evangelical believer. And he said that on the Hill, evangelicals were perceived as people who wrote to their congressmen only when they were mad about something. They never wrote letters of encouragement or thanks over votes that they liked. And on one occasion, he he said he was talking to a group of, of evangelicals who had gathered, they were enraged, and this was quite a while ago, the issue was prayer in the schools. They were just furious over this. And when he was speaking to them and talking with them, Halverson asked this crowd, about 300 people, he said, 
he asked them this question. How many of you have prayed with your children this month outside of church? No hand went up. None. I would add, how many of us have prayed for our governing authorities? Prayed for President Trump, Vice President Pence, Speak, uh, uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, Chief Justice John Roberts, Joint Chiefs Chairman General Joseph Dunford. It's easy to criticize. I find it harder to pray. I'm speaking from experience here. I, uh, by the way, is your guilt quota rising? I can count the number of times I have prayed for Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg on one finger. <laughs> and she's sick. Yeah, but Garrett, yeah, oh, I know, I know, I know. But God takes care of those things. So, we're to submit to authority. We're to pay our taxes. We're to pray for our rulers. Does this mean we can't criticize or protest? No. Is there a place for civil disobedience? Yes, there is. Read the book of Daniel. In fact, I, 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 I put a handout in your notes. Years ago, I preached through the book of Daniel, and when I was done with that, I put together a view of politics, and we're not going to read that now. If, if you get tired of the sermon, you can read it today, but it's, a, it's an overview of a, it's a political overview of the book of Daniel through the lens of governing authorities in, poli in politics, because Daniel was the, an amazing politician. So, and, but you see there are cases of civil disobedience. You see cases where Daniel speaks to Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar and tells him, cease from your sins. John the Baptist rebuked Herod for the evil things that Herod had done, Luke 13, verse 19. Many Old Testament kings did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord and were rebuked by God's spokesman. So truth and righteousness always are a higher authority than the authority of any individual ruler but God, and so we, yes, we do speak truth to power. We do criticize when that criticism is appropriate and constructive. But we pray for them as well. Okay, so that's the big picture from Romans 13. I want to talk about two images. And we'll spend the rest of, most of our, the rest of our time talking about that. And that's... We said there are three obligations. Submission to the authority of, of the office, payment of taxes for infrastructure, and prayer. Government does its thing. We do our thing. They're two different things. Doesn't mean that we are uninvolved in government, but there are a lot of caveats here. So many, in fact, that it makes your brain want to explode. But Jesus gave two word pictures on how we're to function in a pagan society. I'd like for you to turn with me to one more passage, and that's in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're gonna, I'm going to start in, in the middle of the sermon, or, or some ways through the Sermon on the Mount, with verse 13. 
Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So that's a, a huge light, a, a city light. Um, <coughs> it cannot be hidden. But then there are the small lights. Nor does anyone hide a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Two pictures, salt and light. Salt was used in Scripture both, it's referred to both as a flavoring, and, and you know, when Betsy will point out, I like to put salt on everything. I think I'm just being biblical. Okay? Following the word. <laughs> that is one of the uses that you see. Well, it's only in one place. It's in Job 6. But, hey, I like it. So it but salt flavored the food. It, and it brings, it, salt brings out the, the best taste in the food. But salt also was used, and more so, to preserve meat. They would rub meat with salt to delay rottenness. Now, we don't think of this second purpose quite so much because we have refrigeration, and they did not. But that was a very common and more common than just adding flavor. And the point is this. As salt, the believer helps delay moral decay in the society by living a Christ-like life. And Jesus is saying, okay, if I could paraphrase, my disciples should bring out the best in the culture should prevent the worst in the culture because but this will happen only if they remain salt which means different from the meat different from the culture light was a metaphor that was used frequently in the old testament it's used of jesus 21 times in the gospel of john jesus is the light of the world but we tend to think of light in terms of our experience. We're just not used to absolute darkness. <laughs> we, we, we personally have hundreds of watts at our individual disposal. Just flip the switch. The bright lights of any city reflected off of the bottoms of clouds can be seen for about 100 miles. There's a glow. But if you've ever been a cave in a cave or lived in a world, third world country without harnessed electricity, on a night without moon or stars, it's hard to see anything. If you're in a cave, you can't see your hand in front of your face. Here's the deal. In order to make a difference in that darkness, you don't have to be a spotlight. You don't have to be prominent. Jesus' point is that in contrast to absolute darkness, even a little light is wonderful. It makes everything else visible. Christian thinker Tim Keller recently was invited to England to address parliamentary prayer breakfast on the topic, what can Christianity offer society in the 21st century? And he spoke about salt and light, and I've been thinking about that because of the things that I heard him say, although I was already planning to do this with you. Uh, and, and he brought up some examples, though. 
uh, and I'll add to those. He said, for example, here's, here's, the, here's the church of salt and light. The first person ever in history, in all of recorded history, to make an explicit case against slavery, that slavery was moral, morally wrong, was a Christian theologian. And uh, uh, he, he was anchoring his thoughts in Scripture. As Paul said in Galatians 3.28, there is neither slave nor free. We're all one in Jesus Christ. You are all one because the gospel changes everything. Here's a second example of salt and light. The first se- so slavery's one. Here's the second one. The first sexual revolution. In the Greco-Roman world, sex was based on status. Access was based on status. And that's the world that Paul's writing in in Romans 13. This is what John the Baptist accused Herod of. Here's how it worked. Those who had power were able to do as they wished with those who had less power. That was expected. So I'm going to be blunt here. If a high Roman official was staying at your house and wanted your wife or your daughter or your son for that evening, neither you nor they could say no. And then along comes Christianity and says that all sex is to be consensual and covenantal, anchored in the covenant of marriage. And it was revolutionary. A third example of salt and light would be the idea of universal benevolence, which I talked about when I started taking care of people in crisis, regardless of their politics, their religion, their race. That's a Christian idea. The point is this. We will not benefit the world if we are not different from the world. If we're just like the world, so what? The salt has to be different from the meat. The the light has to shine into and illuminate the darkness. So here's, here's the last thought. I want us to think together about how we can be salt and light where we are right now. What's the flip side of being salt and light? What if my light is so tarnished that Christ can't shine through? Then I've got some cleaning up to do. I've got to go back from Romans 13 to Romans 6 through 8. And I was saying, okay, Lord, I've got to repent here. I've got to make some changes in my life, and I can only do that by your guidance through your spirit. Jesus warned that the salt cannot, should not lose its saltiness. Have you ever thought about that? Salt's not like a battery. It can't lose its saltiness the same way that a battery loses its charge and dies. Sodium chloride, per se, cannot not be sodium chloride. Okay? It's, it, it can't lose its saltiness per se. So what does Jesus mean? I want you to think about it mathematically. He's not talking about subtraction or division. Okay? If you subtract salt from salt, you still have salt. If you divide salt from salt, you still have salt. Instead, he's talking about addition. Salt uses its, loses its usefulness by addition. Foreign elements that don't belong can infiltrate and adulterate. If you add sand, if you add dirt, if you add glitter, or just a little pinch of uh, potassium cyanide, the salt is no longer useful, can no longer be a preservative. 
Christianity has been massively effective as salt and light in the world over the centuries. And we can continue to be massively effective only if we're different from the meat. Only if we're not too tarnished to shine. My disciples are to be about bringing out the best in the culture and preventing the worst in the culture only if they remain salt. Only if their light can shine. Only if they're different from the culture. So if Christians were to make things better, but we can only do that by remaining different. Not being absorbed into the things of the world so that the church becomes guilty of the sin of relevance. You understand what I mean by that? Where our, our, whole, our whole drive, I, I just want to be relevant. I want to be relevant. I want to be relevant. I like to be relevant. Let's be relevant. The problem is that the sins of the world become the sins of the church. Obviously, our society is not headed in a good direction. I'm sure everyone has heard by now that this past week, the uh, largest society of psychologists in the country and in the world, the American Psychological Association, issued a report claiming that traditional masculinity is now a social problem. And here's their cure, quote, psychologists, psychologists should help boys and men create their own concepts of what it means to be male, unquote. Lord, help us all. So, what do we do? I want to think about what we're not to do and then what we are to do. Here's what we're not to do. When you take positions, make sure of your facts. Be cautious of which bandwagon you're jumping on. Um, there are lots of bandwagons parked at the station. Be careful that you've got your facts right before going off in an emotional argument. Secondly, make sure that your issues are important issues. In other words, there are a lot of potential targets out there. Make sure they're big targets, or at least targets that are appropriate for your, your own life. Third, communicate as ambassadors of Christ from a gospel perspective. Steve McFarland, pr former director of law at the Christian Legal Society, said this, quote, we need to spend less time writing hate-mongering appeal letters that stigmatize the demonic forces of the left and spend more time as salt and light candidates on school boards and public libraries, unquote. Some of you may remember the story of my colleague at Bryan, Kurt Wise. Kurt was a paleontologist, fossil, his PhD was in fossils uh, from Harvard. He was the chief teaching assistant for Stephen Jay Gould. Stephen Jay Gould was the um, macroevolutionary theorist who developed punctuated equilibrium. And you're sitting there saying, amen, of course, I know that. So, but he was very, you know, Stephen Jay Gould, the biggest guy in our country on evolutionary theory, Kurt was studying under him and with him, and uh, Kurt was a creationist. And um, Kurt told this story, he's sp spoken here a few times, uh, for Midweek on the Mountain things over the years. And he told this story um, when he was still in graduate school. Uh, Stephen Gould received a lot of hate mail. Guess who from? Christians. Or those who claim to be Christians. Uh, maybe there were some good people who wrote, I don't know. I, 
there were a lot of misguided things that were written to him. So one day, Kurt sees Gould sitting on the steps outside the science building by himself, looking very discouraged. And he went over to him and he said, Steve, what's the matter? Gould had just come from the doctor who had told him that he has cancer. And that cancer would eventually kill him. Um, Kurt comforted him, and he'd been talked to him about the gospel before, and he, but he thought, you know, maybe, maybe this will now be an opportunity for me to share the gospel with Steve in the days to come. Okay, fast forward about two weeks. Now it's time for Gould to tell all of his graduate students because their programs were at risk uh, with his health. So he called all of his graduate students into a conference room. He set them down, and here's how he told them about his cancer. He read a hate letter from a Christian lady who ended her letter by telling Stephen Gould that she was going to pray that God would give him cancer. And he put down the letter, and he said, this woman's prayers have been answered. And that's how he told them. So did that letter draw him closer to the Lord? The bridge that Kurt had been building for the gospel was shattered, and he never had another opportunity. There are lots of things we're not to do. Here's what we are to do. We're to be good citizens. We're to pay and pray, pay our taxes, pray for our authorities. We're to be good ambassadors for Jesus as salt and light in our own small world. If God calls some of you to be involved in governments or some form of political activism, man, God bless you. Go for it. God sometimes gives platforms to believers from which they can influence public policy. So take good aim, avoid the wrong bandwagon, speak truth to power. Laws are not made in a vacuum. So be salt and light. Historically, Christians have have done this. George Whitfield, John Wesley, Hal Harris, Lord Chasbury, William Wilberforce. Here's what they did. Prison reform, uh, mental asylum reform, extended medical care, exploitation of women in factories. Uh, got rid of that. Child labor laws, uh, abolition of slavery, establishment of orphanages, reform uh, of the penal code, and so on. The body's been busy. Okay? Be salt and light. If God calls you to work in government, if God calls you be salt and light at work, you should be the first and the last at work. That is the first to do your job with integrity and excellence and the last to rob your employer of your good work through laziness or your employee of their wages through greediness. The first to help a colleague in difficulty, the last to return a sarcastic remark. The first to honestly desire the advancement of people around you to positions that they are truly fitted for. And the last to make bitter marks to others when it, you don't get it or it doesn't go your way or the way you think it should go. So be salt and light in the government at work. Be salt and light, you young people in your school. Um, be an ambassador for Christ. Don't join in the bullying and the sexting and the gossip all the things that are just crazy now in the schools. It may not make you popular, but if you, it will please your king. You'll sleep better at night. And when you get older, you're going to carry fewer scars into adulthood. 
be salt and light in your community. I love it that several people in our church have tentacles of influence that spread through our city and beyond. I love that. I, there are also those in our church who are involved in helping the poor and the hungry. I love it that Signal Mountain Social Services calls us so that we can jump in on a meals ministry that Diane's heading up. Uh, if you're a part of that, great. There are other outreaches in our community. I love that some of you coach kids' sports teams. I love the opportunity that that brings to be salt and light. I love it that you're, we're, we're a part of local missions, like helping Bethany and Choices, Bible in the Schools, Racial Reconciliation Ministries, other groups here. And, and if you are looking for an opportunity to be salt and light, ask me. Check with Lewis. We'll plug you into someplace. There are places to plug in. But discern the times. Hopefully we could influence policy locally, lar larger than locally perhaps, as salt and light. Maybe not. We may be called upon by God, as happened with Daniel at times, to become victims of our own government. Our government has abandoned any biblical anchor. It's now pretty much morally adrift. So you've got arguments coming from all kinds of different places, and the consistency is hard to mark. The government authority, the governing authorities can make laws that we cannot obey. So if a pastor refuses to marry a gay couple, right now, we can say no. Eventually, it will be called a hate crime. Now, that hasn't happened here yet, but it's not a far leap from the bakery to the pulpit. Don't say that that won't happen. It just did in Netherlands last week with 250 pastors. And we're usually a decade or two behind Europe in having our laws normalize and then enforce social sins. Our job is clear. We're ambassadors. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Lord, we thank you for your word, for the teaching that we see in it, and we ask, Lord, that you would help us to think biblically and put these things into practice in ways that will glorify you as we are ultimately recognized it's those whose citizenship is in heaven we pray this in jesus name amen if you'll take a hymn book from